Welcome to the Rally Podcast, and I'm Marissa Raglan. I'm Josh Vaughn, and we are co-founders of Rally. We are all about cultivating community through creativity. In this podcast series, we explore creative communities and the communal landscapes they'll foster. Welcome to my living room. Today, we are talking to Romy Owens, a multidisciplinary artist from Enid, Oklahoma. Romy creates with great intentionality, and her desire for community and collaboration is at the forefront of her artistic journey. We're very excited to talk with her about her current fiber works, upcoming collaborative projects, and more. So let's get started. So thank you so much for being here, Romy. Um, do you remember how we met? I'm so embarrassed that I don't. <laughs> I, I thought, I think, I mean, it could be so many things and, you know, we all meet so many people. My, <laughs> my first thought would be, that we met at a momentum. I mean, momentum just seems like such a natural place where I have met so many people. Right. But please tell me, how did we meet, Marissa? So I have this distinct memory, like where I was really getting to know you, and that's through the Elaborate Collaborate project. Yep. So could you maybe share a little bit about what that project was? I can, and I'm happy to. Um, I wouldn't have thought that because... And here's why, because that was in 2015. Yes. And I thought we'd known each other longer than that. But um, yeah, so the Elaborate Collaborate was a project that Kelsey Carper and I co-curated that was at IAO in 2015. And we put together, um, I want to say in total, it was 54 artists. So it would have been 40 something in drawing and 10 in video. And did a collaboration project in the style of the Exquisite Corpse. And I just, I mean, I loved that project. I thought it was so great. It was one of the more fulfilling and just watching how people work together and added and the conversation about it. And the fact that people kept coming back to the gallery over and over to watch how it all transformed. You know, it's a, such a leap of faith when you're putting together anything and then that all those all of you and all those artists kind of came along for the ride. And I think we created something special. Yeah, I completely agree. The The idea to even be selected for that project, I, it was a huge confidence boost for me. And having the opportunity to see the other artists in the metro and the area and get to know their style of working and then collaborate, it was really cool. I learned so much through the process of that Um about the artists. It was so interesting. One of the artists specifically that I was just like, wait, what, what is happening here is Cassie Stover. Oh yeah. So I don't know if you remember the, the nitty gritty of the details of, of that. We, everybody started with a panel and a drawing and then we hung them all up and they could be taken on and off the wall and artists could contribute to other artists' work. And it was up for a month or six weeks. I can't exactly remember how long it was up. And so what, how it started is radically different than how it ended. But there was one week when someone went in and, and erased work. Um, and it was, it was interesting because it did really contribute to this conversation of like, well, is it, is it, does everything have to be added or can things be subtracted? Is this part of a dialogue? And that conversation was really interesting to me, but the result after that was oh, Cassie Stover can do anything mm -hmm. in anybody's style. So anybody who could draw anything in their own unique style, Cassie Stover could come in 
and theoretically look at it and completely replicate it. And you wouldn't know, is that Cassie's work or is that Marissa's work or Jennifer's work or Allison's? Like, you don't know whose work it is because she is so skilled in the variety of style that she can do. Oh, God. Anyway. I'm going on way too mm-hmm. long about Cassie. Don't, I'm no just such a fan no. of her work. And I mean, I learned like that kind of detail about 50 other artists. It was really, it was so cool. I love other artists being that excited about other artists. Oh, yeah. I know you first landed on my radar with, I think I read an article about the unbearable absence of landscapes. Oh, yeah. And just what you were attempting and all that. At first, it made my carpal tunnel like start acting mm-hmm. up. Me <laughs> just too. Just reading the article. <laughs> it was unbelievable that your knit bomb across 108 Contemporary was mm-hmm. just ridiculous. I met you whenever I would go help Marissa or hang out with Marissa over at Nextdoor Studio and that was under Current Studio, which is a project you had with Kelsey oh, Carper, yeah. which was a lot of fun and met you there. But then I had the privilege of finally meeting you, meeting you when we all three worked on Symbiotic One. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Jerrica Walsh. Yes. Right? Shout Thanks, Jerrica. Oh, what up, Jerrica? Yeah. But that was a, that was just the thing that stood out to me is all three of those are very much community oriented. Community is so deeply woven into it. You could tell that it was part of your personality that was seeping into all your art was just like, let's get other people in trouble with us. Let's do this. I just really love the idea of it. Of course, with a name like rally, that's, that's the whole idea of getting people together to, to start something or mm-hmm. to good, do that. Is it, it seems like good trouble. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, so community appears to be like at the core of your motivation and artistic practice. Can you share why that is and what community fuels your creativity? Well, part of it is definitely rooted in the we-ness. Like, I love we. I love we. I don't, I I mean, I, I like when people can work individually and express themselves and I can appreciate that. But I, I feel like I always want to come at everything in as inclusive a way as possible because more is more. Mm-hmm. And it just saying those words feels real trite almost, but I don't know. I feel like every single time I have been engaged in community activity or community practice, it's just always more fulfilling because you're having a shared experience Mm -hmm. like, like artist ink is, or like the elaborate collaborate was, or like current, like just current studio, all of these things. It's like, well, you're kind of going through something together. And that connection that you can make with people. I feel it validates my own feelings about it. I feel like it's beneficial to me as well as to others. And I think that mutually beneficial component is, it's just so rewarding that it's hard to get away from it. And when I go back to individual practice, I enjoy that. And I do love what I make individually, but, but I always find myself longing for the next group activity. So I think that's part of the why. I also, though, have this whole background prior to being an artist where I worked nonprofit. And the reason I work nonprofit is not unlike the reason that I like community activity through art. It's, it is all based upon the idea of making things better. And I think... For me to think as an individual that I have that power is one, foolish and incorrect, but I do have the power to connect and to 
build coalitions. And I, and I think that that's powerful. Yeah. And I think that it taps into something I believe is that art is intended to be communal. Mm. It's not just in the, not just in the appreciation of it, but also in the making of it. And if, if you are an artist that is successful, you're probably tapping into, you know, your group of people and your community of people. And for you, what is that community that's making you Romeo Owens? It's just the, it's the broadest sense, the Oklahoma art community. It just is. I like, I really love being rooted here. I really love the potential of how we are such a small state relatively and how big of an impact art can have within a smaller state. If we were in a larger state that was just like art all the time, everywhere, uh, th- does it lose its value? No, not necessarily that, but it becomes harder to kind of cut through the noise and find what's meaningful. Um, here, I feel like the potential for showing meaning through art is it's more readily accessible. It, maybe that's foolish or arrogant, but it's no, a really, unique perspective that I like. Um, so the, it's the, it's the broadest Oklahoma artist community that I feel profound connection to and want to be a part and am proud to be a part of. Certainly here when I was living in Oklahoma city, I mean, core cluster of people and community that I really am missing very much. Um, in Enid, I have that too. It's a little bit of a smaller group, but I mean, I I have people in Enid and they help me feel like we can do anything. And that is amazing. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have your people in your corners where you need them. Yep. I'm really curious about learning more about Sugar High. Mm. I think I'd love to start there. And you you mentioned your community in Enid. Could you tell us more about what we can expect with Sugar High opening up soon? Right. We open in less than six weeks. I'm not nervous about that at all. <laughs> not even a little bit. Um, Because we are actually on a really good timeline. Like we're kind of on schedule, which is That's amazing. Awesome. And I love it. Um, what can you expect? Overstimulation. Okay. For sure. Um, it is, it's not subtle. There's nothing subtle about Shirai. That's for sure. So we are envisioning and creating a world of fictional science fiction narrative where everybody only eats sugar and Instant gratification is a way of life. So we're kind of observing what's kind of happening in modern day America, let's say, without throwing everybody in the world under the bus, where, you know, we don't, on the whole, have the healthiest diets. And on the whole, we are very, we have been conditioned to think that we can get whatever we want whenever we want it. And I'm not... I'm not absolving myself of that. I'm as guilty of all of that as it, and it's not like I'm saying, oh, all these, mm. it's like, no, I'm part of this too. And it's hard not to observe that within media, news, everything. It's just, it's jarring. So we're taking that kernel of what is a small challenge within American society and blowing it up into the future of like, this is where it leads to. Um, it's very kid centric for a few reasons. 
one one is very genuinely when this idea came to be, it was like, you know, what would really serve this community? And having spent three years closely paying attention to the Enid community, one thing that kept coming up over and over was the that there is a genuine need for family entertainment. Um, and I don't think Enid's exclusive got an exclusive hold on that. I think that's true in lots of communities. Right. Um, but family entertainment. So then, so then your challenge becomes how do you create something that entertains kids, teens, young adults, and parents and potentially grandparents. And so at, when we put together our core group at the very beginning, and we're having this conversation about like, okay, we know we want to do something immersive. We know we want to do something that's really unique to Enid that really can engage people from the broadest backgrounds and bring them all together in art to have this shared experience. What could it be about? And I think I just like pretty flippantly threw out an idea. I was like, what if we made it all about sugar and color and fun? And that our core team that we started with, we all agreed that that would be a really great mm -hmm. direction. So as it's, as the storyline has evolved and you think about how you can engage a toddler and a grandparent at the same time, you have to make it engaging to the toddler with secret stuff that the toddler won't understand, but the grandparent will. So it's Wally, -E, the movie. Like, we're not doing Wally -E, literally, obviously, at all. <laughs> but it's like Wally -E in that Wally -E is really a movie about a robot if you're a kid. Like, it's this trash compacting robot. Mm -hmm. But if you're a grown up and you really see what's happening here, this is like an environmental disaster movie. Like, you know, yeah. it's. Just, just, yeah. In time, scary, everybody's on a space station eating slurries of unknown origin. If you think about that, that's horrifying. So you've got this kids movie that then has adult appeal. Or you have the converse of that. You have a movie like Idiocracy, which mm -hmm. is not a kids movie at all. It is definitely an adult movie definitely. with language and with content and everything. But we're taking kernels of that and making them kid appropriate. It looks like the lineup of artists that are contributing to the Sugar High is just amazing. Can you share what excites you the most about this collaboration with other artists? I am happy to. What excites me about collaboration in general in any collaboration is that I have all the knowledge that I'm not the smartest person in the room, the best artist in the room. It is only because I can tap into other people and their skills and their knowledge and build something that is bigger than any single one of us. So we've got, we do have a really great lineup of artists for Sugar High that includes some very established, uh, incredibly successful, long time career artists, but we have uh, even more emerging artists who awesome. this is their first, this is the first thing they're doing, or they haven't done anything uh, collaboratively or as a group, like all of these things are our first form. This is a first paycheck for some artists. Like, yeah. oh, cool. it's so exciting. It's so fun to be able to do that. But the ideas that have come out of just, you know, we formed this kernel of a concept and then when we opened it up for people to submit their ideas, like 
their submissions pushed the story forward and helped us realize deeper ways in which to kind of explore this territory of sugar and immediate gratification. And it's really, it's been really rewarding. I love it. I mean, Rock Candy Industries, as an example, is our fictitious megacorp. You know, you have to know that there's a megacorp in the future. And Wally, it's by and large, like there's an in, in idiocracy, they have, oh, I feel like the Taco Bell is like the bank or something. So our, our megacorp is Rock Candy Industries, um, which you learn about in Sugar High. But that came out of somebody's submission. Like that didn't cool. come from the core team or it wasn't a part of our original thing. Kiona uh, Millerens, who is one of the artists in it, when she submitted her work, she came up with this kind of narrative for this matriarch of this megacorp candy company. And it was mm-hmm. like, oh, well, that's that's awesome and rich. And we need to dive into that a little deeper. Um, and Nick Bayer is another yeah. uh, great example of someone who who what he what he proposed was not. Like we didn't put out any specifications really past money and the basic concept. And he came up with ants. He was like, well, what if I make these ants? And it's like, "Uh uh-huh. And the ants have a whole storyline that he came up with. Like, great. This is perfect. It really, it just makes the whole thing better. So that's, those are some of the great things. Um, The emerging artists who are working on it. Oh God, I just love what they're making. And I hope when people come and they see Sugar High, it's not about any individual, but I do hope that when people do come and they see something that they like, that they'll, they will then dive, the audience will dive a little deeper into who those artists are. Yeah, that's very cool. I love the ambition and vision behind Sugar High. I love the great communal call to artists to create this awesomely collective expression but I want to know why is it important that Sugar High is in Aided? Because mm, that's where I live. Yeah, I mean that that it's where I live. I, if I were here, I don't know that I would have even had this idea. I mean, well, in fact, I can tell you this: if I lived here, I would not have had this idea. I would have said, you know what, Factory Obscura is already doing immersive. There's not a need for that in this community because they do it so well and they're so successful and they're expanding in so many beautiful ways. Enid doesn't have visual art. I mean, there's, there is public art and I don't mean to say that there's not, we've got dozens of murals. We've got quite a few sculptures. There's, there's great visual art to be seen. There's not a gallery. There's not, okay. there's no opening. There's no, there, there's not really the space for that. Mm-hmm. And so trying to sell visual art in Enid is tricky because it's not a part of the community's language. Yet. Well, and it, and it is now, but not everybody there loves it. Right. But I can't care about the people who don't love it. I have to go for the people who do and for the people who don't even know that they don't have an opinion on it yet. Like, mm-hmm. but yeah, I can't help but just think that Enid and lots of small communities, just they, they need more 
perspective broadening experiences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not that their experiences aren't valid or worth having, because of course they are. Everybody's experiences are valid and worth having. But man, like, can we, can we have more? Like, does it have to just be this? Mm -hmm. Can we have more? And so it's hard not to see a need in Enid for more art. And as long as I'm there, I'm going to keep pushing that button. Yeah. We both are very, very passionate about being intentional about putting art in places where it's not supposed to be, or not, not Mm -hmm. in a defiant way, but just like you, you stumble up on it and you're like, what, that's, that's different. Why is there, why is this here? Because then people who didn't start off the day or may have never started a day planning to engage art and creativity. And it's part of that communal experience. They now are experiencing it and it's just, it's fun to watch the interactions and sometimes the little keys turned and somebody's entire mind and everything has changed. And sometimes those people start liking art. Sometimes those people go and start making art. And that's that for me, that is, that's why it, it, things like that need to happen. They need Mm -hmm. to be in, in they need to be everywhere. They do need to be everywhere. That is one of the things that since the wing happened, um, and introduced art into the public vernacular in a way that no one expected, but it did. I mean, yeah, you have a community of 50,000 people talking about art really for the first time. That's pretty powerful. It was Mm -hmm. pretty exciting, even though so much of it was negative. There was so much positive that came out of it. And I think the same is true for Sugar High. I mean, people are talking about it and whether they're excited about it or they're not excited about it, like... how can I not be proud that Enid is talking about art for the first time in decades? Yeah. Probably. I don't know. I mean, yeah. it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And it's real easy to see how one thing begets another. Mm-hmm. And you see more people taking risks and you see more people kind of embracing nonconformity and not being afraid of it. What is the like structure like for Sugar High? What's the footprint? You mean like the physical footprint? Uh-huh. So we're in a building or in a borrowed space. I have to say like Rob Cummins owns this space in downtown Enid and he is letting us use it rent free oh, for wow. six months. Wow. And that that's awesome because, you know, a lot of business owners are not quite as generous when they could be collecting rent. And we said, we don't want to pay rent. And he was like, okay. Okay. Um, He owns a building. So there's that advantage. You know, it's not like he has a mortgage. He has to pay on it. Um, It is a 2000 square foot floor building wide, deep. I don't know, 40 feet, 100 feet. I don't know what it is. I haven't measured it in so long. (laughs) That's been, I've slept since then, but it's big. It's 2000 square feet. And in the center of the existing space was a sunken pit like that goes 15 by maybe 20 feet deep or so. It's a, it was a pretty big pit. Um, and so when we toured it as a team, the five of us, me, Ben Tox, Riley and Kelly, when we toured it, Ben, his brain just started buzzing instantly about the potential with what this pit alone presented to us. Um, in terms of building out the space with construction, because that's his purview is making shape of the space. Awesome. So we have three levels 
of engagement. So we have a, there's stairs that go up in a place and there are stairs that go down in a place and we've got a slide and we've got a lot of things that are at ground level. So 90% of it is ADA wheelchair accessible or walker accessible. Um, but there are two places where, yeah, there's stairs and they go to cool places. Um, so it's 11 different spaces broken up in this 2000 square feet. We've got, you know, an entry and then you can path through, uh, it's meandering path through multiple rooms that are kind of thematically different. Okay. I don't know. And I'm happy to talk about them if you want, but I'm also like, how much do you give away? Yeah. No, I I think think you're getting people's imaginations going and they'll want to go and see what's happening in Enid. It's been really fun walking people through the space because there's no art in there yet. I mean, there's a little bit. Tox Morello, uh, who was part of the core five in the beginning, has been doing some on-site murals on walls and filling up window spaces. And so there is some art on site right now. For the most part, it's still construction, painting, preparing for art deliveries. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's been fun walking people through because I don't, I think, the value in being underestimated over and over is really remarkable. And so when someone comes through and they're like, Oh, this is a lot. And it's like, yeah, this is a lot. It's a lot. It's so much work. Like I was there painting this morning. And so you're still actively fundraising and Mm -hmm. it opens April 1st. April 1st. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. We've got to direct people to sugar high website. Yeah. Sugarhighenid.com. Cool. Yeah, there's an Insta, Sugar High Enid is our Insta, and there's a Facebook page. Perfect. So, Romy, do you consider yourself to be a creative? Well, yeah. And yeah, I do. I don't know. I don't know who isn't. They just don't know it yet. Kind of. I mean, don't we all have the capacity to express in different ways. Like I'm not naturally intuitive with math, but I mean, I can do math. I would not call myself a mathematician, but I can apply math to what I'm doing. And I think that the converse is true in other fields with creativity, with art, with music. And I, I I can't help but feel like in every pocket of the world, like even if you're not actively making, you are consuming creativity mm-hmm. through music, through theater, through dance, through movies, television, visual art, gaming. I mean, there's so many ways in which creativity filters into our lives. Oh, yeah. And I think that there's a real obstacle for a lot of people who maybe are introverted or maybe have a little insecurity around their own expressiveness to label themselves an artist or label themselves a creative. Yeah, I get it. I guess. I don't know. I mean, I'm an artist. Mm -hmm. That's my occupation and I am creative and I would be lying to say I'm not. I live in a imaginary world (laughs) easily 30% of the time. So what is your origin story? How does the multidiscipline artist grow a passion for community, create detailed international work, and debut concepts and collaborative efforts in multiple cities here in Oklahoma? What makes any of us the way we are? 
what made you Romy today? Mm, my mom. Yeah. My sister. The community of Enid. I mean, so much television. So much television. Latchkey children through the 70s, child of divorce, lots of television, lots of storytelling, lots of books. I read, I was a voracious reader as a child. But when it came around to, I'd say high school, I mean, in high school, my senior year, I should preface by saying I'm not a sports fan. I mean, I don't mind that people are sports fans and I'm glad people like sports, but I'm not a sports fan. But in my senior year of high school, I was voted the most spirited student. Like for every spirit day, I was like over the top spirit, cheer, raw. I wasn't a cheerleader. I wasn't on pep squad. I wasn't on any of those things, but definitely a big fan of raising enthusiasm. Um, Cause you're good at it. I, I think I have a natural aptitude for you it do. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. When I was little, the fields I was drawn to were always creative fields. Like for a long time, I wanted to be a photographer growing up for a long time. I wanted to be an interior designer growing up for a long time. I, like there were these paths mm-hmm. until high school. And then, you know, they just get squashed by grownups who are like, you're never going to make a living doing that. And so I kind of was routed towards education. I was like, I don't really want to be a teacher. I have taught at different times in my life. Um, My degree ended up being in media. I was in PR for a while doing nonprofit PR, done youth programming. I don't know. My origin story as an artist is accidental. I, after 9-11, had my own version like so many people did of a like a nervous breakdown. I didn't have a nervous breakdown, but it was like a existential crisis is a much better word for it. Like what's the meaning of life? Life is short. Look, this awful thing just happened on American soil. What's going to happen next? Like everything about the uncertainty of it. And I'm sure that the pandemic right now is going to be that kind of spark for a whole other, I mean, well, we've already seen it with the great resignation. I mean, people are reassessing their lives and deciding what to do. So 9-11 was a pivotal moment for me in shifting. And I went back to school and got a master's in photography with no art background, with no art education. I never took art in junior high or in high school. I got a U in art in the fifth grade. I was never, uh, I was never geared towards that. I never would have thought I had a natural aptitude for art until I went... I was like, I just love photography. I'm just going to, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to study photography. I'm going to learn about it. And I, I was in the dark room one night at OCU and Shad Thetford and Trent Lawson were in the studio late at night. And I came out with a print and I was like, what about this? And it was like, that was the first piece of art I'd ever made. And it was just like this very simple black and white photograph, but the nuance and the paper and the time I had spent with dodging and burning and making it perfect. And like, we all were like, yeah, that's, you, you have made your first piece of art. That's cool. And then from there, you know, you meet people and it's just like, I don't know if I hadn't met Trent, I probably wouldn't have met Julia. And then I would like, it just kind of snowballs from there. So it's like collaboration and community is in the core of the origin story too, for you. 
It is. It is. And I, you know, I wouldn't want to dismiss the fact that like my parents were very community involved Mm -hmm. adults. So I had that modeling like Mm -hmm. growing up, we didn't have visual art there, but my parents were really involved in Gaslight and they were, they attended the symphony regularly. And when we would travel as a family, was really fortunate at a young age to have a lot of traveling experiences around the United States. We'd go to museums and we'd see things. And so that exposure to art was always there. Art appreciation was always there. But it really, it was after 9-11 that I was like, I don't want to do this. And life is short and I want to do something that makes me happy. And then, of course, I'm doing this thing that's making me happy and I'm thinking like, oh, I should be making the world a better place. How do I do that? And so that's mm-hmm. how it just expands out. I think it was back when you were my landlord back in the uh, <laughs> next door studio days. Sounds so horrible. I know, like, it does. Where's my rat? My slumlord. No, right? no you were know, great. I know. funny to think that I was a slumlord. You know. No, you were not. You were so great. And um, I think back to hearing you share that everything is temporary. Mm -hmm. And so even when you're sharing your origin story, I hear those notes too of like no time but the present. So can you share more about everything is temporary and how that (laughs) mantra fits in with your work? I love that mantra. I, I do. And I do believe that everything is temporary. I believe that wholehearted well i don't like i can believe it up one side and down the other and mm-hmm. you cannot believe it it doesn't change the fact that it's true everything is temporary even the mountains change um yeah it just seems like in a place where everything is we're temporary every relationship is ephemeral every it's all meaningful but it all ends and why wouldn't we be doing the most we can with our lives just to be fulfilled and to do what makes us happy without doing harm to other people ever? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I mean, I get that some people, their happiness would come at great expense to other people, and I would never advocate for that. Um, but yeah, we should be doing all that we can to make the world better. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it's fuel. Like I'm just thinking of it's fuel to continue creating for you. It certainly uh, is. That is actually, um, it's almost an oxygen. And what, what that idea, that philosophy, that mentality has done for me is liberate me. Right. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, well, what, what is, what is the worst that's going to happen? literally what's the worst that's going to happen that kind of scrapes the edge off of some of the like artists or we always have self-doubt we always have uh imposter syndrome mm-hmm. things like that that kind of uh having that mindset uh, for me on the outside looking in it looks like you've i don't doubt that you still have you know times where you're just like i don't know what i'm doing you know they're going to find out whatever but you're just like i'm going to do it anyways there's no time you know <laughs> Well, yeah, there, I mean, there certainly are people who think I'm a fraud already and whatever. whatever. I mean, well, you know, that's just it. Like whenever they're entitled to their opinion, maybe Mm -hmm. I am a fraud. I don't know. I don't think I'm a fraud. I don't feel like a fraud. I feel like I'm doing the best that I can with my human body and my human brain. But but yeah, why wouldn't we just all be doing stuff? I, I know that fear is a big factor for a lot of people in taking risks. I just, I guess 
don't have that fear. I just don't have that fear. Mm -hmm. Because what is the worst? I'm going to fail? Is that the worst thing that's going to happen? No. Well, I've failed a million times, like, and somehow I'm still here. At some point you you failed and you're like, well, I wasn't really that bad. And I move forward Mm -hmm. and know I learned stuff. And so a lot of times I think those failures are what makes us and gives us the the metal to become who we need to be the person who's making successful art and is being successful. So it's almost like we have to jump. I mean, right. And we have to fail. We've got to hit some stuff on the way down and get back up and go again. Yeah. I think when I was painting in college, it's like the messy middle mm-hmm. and working yeah. through that to get through the, the yeah. next steps. For those who aren't familiar, Romy has created a large public work of art in Enid, Oklahoma, entitled Under Her Wing Was the Universe. This project consists of a 2.5-acre native prairie landscape with a large-scale sculptural pavilion that shelters visitors and invites them to escape into daydreams and possibilities. Can you share with us your favorite aspects of creating this public work of art? Yes, I can. That's easy. My favorite aspect of creating the wing was hearing stories from the people who donated, who got a star and named it. That was beautiful and heartbreaking. And I cried and I laughed and I got hundreds of stories. That was hands down the most beautiful that I, that I could create something that could give people a sense of remembrance for their loved ones is uh, incredibly fulfilling. And those stories will linger in my brain until I have dementia. Like they, they're, they were powerful and it Mm -hmm. was, it was really meaningful and I wouldn't share any, Mm -hmm. and I certainly didn't post any. Um, It's an honor that anyone would, have divulged or shared trusted you yeah trusted me with it trusted me with the idea of a star that would honor their person and then that they felt comfortable enough to tell me the story of who and why that was the best part Mm -hmm. of it without a doubt that's great i was one of those that sent a story and i would just love to share with you that it provided me with a way to process my grief. And so my uncle had passed um, from cancer and seeing this project and the, it just seemed so enormous. It seemed like such an undertaking. And for my little voice to have a possibility to uplift someone that was so special to me and also donate for a badass art project, Mm -hmm. it was so cool. So what a thoughtful way to lift up people and provide them with an avenue like that. So cool. Thank you. I, I mean, I still feel so good about the concept and everything about what that art was meant to be and do. Um, and it, and it really, I mean, it is an honor and thank you. I'm curious about the skills that you learned in seeing this project through. And no doubt the challenges and, but then the excitement and seeing it come to uh, completion. So could you kind of walk us through those skills that you feel like you've kind of 
Yeah, I uh, I learned so much through that process. I learned so much. I learned a lot about architecture and I learned a lot about construction that I didn't know going into that. Um, enough to know, I don't know that I'll work with those materials again. Hmm. Um, I might. Not if I have to raise the money to do it, though. Um, the single biggest skill that I honed and perfected was patience. And I don't say that lightly. That was the most exhaustive experience I've ever been through in my entire life. What's the worst that will happen? It's yeah. already, that already happened. It's like mm -hmm. anything is possible now. That's something too that I've noticed too is not all your projects, but you've had several projects that, that I feel like you have pushed yourself to as far as you thought you could go and then a little bit farther. Is that a driving motivation in your work or is that just something that's just like your, your dreams take you to the limits of what your physical mm -hmm. capabilities do? It's interesting how as with each project, how age factors into my endurance mm -hmm. or my stamina in terms of physical pushing myself to a limit or even mentally pushing myself to a limit limit, like what I am capable of now uh, requires some, a little more boundary mm -hmm. in terms of what my body will actually do. Mm -hmm. Um, my sister though pointed something out to me over Christmas that you'd think that maybe I would have noticed this before about myself and I never had, I don't sit still well. Like I don't, <laughs> I always have to be doing something like I'm able to do this because it's a conversation and I'm actively engaged I think that that is it. But if I were alone or at home, like I, I'm, my hands have to be busy. I'm mm. either physically making something or I'm on the computer doing something like I don't do well with idle time. I don't do well with sitting still. I don't like just vegging out and turning my brain off. I do I do for like the last 30 minutes of the day before I'm going to bed as an unwinding measure, mm -hmm. but I'm going, mm -hmm. if I'm awake, I'm going like I'm working within 30 minutes of waking up because I just don't sit still. And the voices in my head are really giving me a hard time when I'm not working. I want to know, I've seen you work in so many different media throughout the years. You've mentioned your degree in photography. I've seen your work in fiber. I've seen the large scale public art. Do you have a favorite media and what? Mm. What? It's such a good question. And I have worked in lots of media and then there are media that I haven't even touched. My favorite media has to involve the materials that are associated with women's work. So the knitting and the sewing, the thread, the yarn, these fiber materials, they, they still fascinate me. And I, I don't even know what, what I could or what I would do, but I want to continue to explore how to push the boundaries of what I can do with those, those things to scale up or, I don't, I don't want to scale down. That's for sure. There are people who make beautiful miniature work. I don't even know why I would try and get into that mm -hmm. arena. The learning curve on it would take forever. Um, but I, yeah, it's, it's the fiber. It's all the fiber art. 
I still love photography. Of course, what's embarrassing is I haven't even picked up a camera in five years. My camera, when I moved to Enid, is in the same spot collecting dust as it has been since I moved there, which is a little embarrassing. But I also, yeah, I also (laughs) think a little bit of that is determined by the fact that I don't see what it is that I would photograph there. Like I haven't found that yet. And my personal photographic journey in terms of what I've captured images of before, they aren't there. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. That's just part of it. Um, I have for sugar high pushed some media boundaries. Like I've learned some new skills just for sugar high. Uh, I don't know if those will translate long-term. Um, but installation, I love installation art as well. I love the idea of taking a whole bunch of stuff and it has to be put together in a certain way to tell a story of a space. I know I want to talk about your off the wall work that you just had, Mm -hmm. just had an opening for it, Oklahoma Contemporary, but something just popped in my mind that maybe I'll, I'm tracing a rabbit trail. We'll see. So a lot of times our group at The Intentionalist, we have talked about this one phrase and it's, we're out to pasture. And throughout the years of knowing one another, one or more of us at a time isn't active in our creative process um, and in our creative practice. Or, rather. Or I'd say a creative production. Yeah. yeah so yeah. not actively producing, but, but Heather Clark Hilliard shared that rather than viewing that as unsuccessful, she views it as that she's out to pasture. Mm -hmm. So she's ruminating on the next thing. You were just sharing about, you know, always working on something. I'm curious, do you, do you feel that urge to create and that keeps the production going or are there times of idleness? I've not had any times of, of idleness where, I took more than, say, two weeks between finish, finishing one thing and starting another. Not even because it's like, I've got the next best idea, but more like, yeah, I can't sit still. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I love that. I probably should be tested for ADHD or something, mm-hmm. but it's working. So I don't know. Yeah. Like, I don't know that I need to correct it. On to the next. Right. Yeah. Just don't stop. We don't want to find out what happens then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think the most uh, recent experience with concluding the wing, when it ended and we had the ribbon cutting, we're in the middle of a pandemic. There's not anything to do. Like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not traveling. I'm not, no one's coming to Enid. Like, it's, you know, like this weird, we all experience that lull of like, well, I barely want to leave my house. Right. So many people were like, take a break, take a break. This time you could take a break, take a break, take a break. I did take a break for two weeks and I made puzzles. I made 10 puzzles. Like this is how not sit still I am. (laughs) I was like, okay, I can take a break. I went and bought a bunch of puzzles and that's what I did all day long for two weeks. And I made 10,000 piece puzzles and like, And then I was like, okay, I'm ready to do something else now. And I started making the mandalas. Okay. Which are some of my favorites of your work that you do. Thank you. I think they're very beautiful and they're very, I don't know, they're just kind of like, they draw you in and just like, "Uh, can I live here for a little while? I just want to take a nap. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
they're, they're very comforting and they were very comforting. And that's why I made them. I didn't, I didn't have some grand idea that like, oh, now I'm going to explore the mandala. I'd been working on thread work in the kind of the breaks when I couldn't be doing anything on the wing because there's weather or there's bureaucracy or there's whatever equipment issues, whatever obstacle was slowing that process down. I'd been working on these small thread pieces, just kind of experimenting, mm -hmm. literally like, what if, what if I, what happens if I do this? What happens if I do this? And made, no, oh, maybe a half a dozen or dozen of those. And then whenever I finished the puzzles, I think the mandalas really struck at the heart of wanting to create that form that is the most inclusive and the most comforting. And I mean, that circle is round. It has no end. That's how long I want to be your friend kind of mentality of like, mm -hmm. I want to do some things with circles because that form is so lovely to me and it's so comforting and it encompasses, it's just everything. I'm just saying words that we all know. Any creative who is listening to this is like, duh, we all know that, but <laughs> it's great. You, it's, no, this I, is so I good. think it's, no, I think it's, I think you, you assume that a lot of things that you've gathered as experiences over, over your, your career that everybody just automatically knows and understands and a lot of them don't. I mean, I don't. Some of these things I'm like, oh, well, I didn't ever see it that way or like that. And well, thank you. So um, I think it's okay. I think I'll it's important going. to share your, your process, the, yeah. your thinking process, even of course it's mundane to you because you've been with that yeah. all your life. It's in my brain. <laughs> but, it's been like, oh, everybody's got to know this, right? Like I, the, I didn't invent this. It's responsible for you being as successful as an artist as you've been. And so. Well, thank you. I hope. The mandalas were, were a form of art therapy. Yeah. I mean, in, in the, I had no, it wasn't, they weren't made with intention. They weren't made with anything past how to keep my hands busy, how to keep my brain quiet, uh, and how to heal, how to heal and mm -hmm. repetitive, that repetitive mm -hmm. process. Like I love repetition, of course, mm -hmm. repetitions at the heart of almost everything I do. Right. I love repetition. Um, after I made the first one, I was like, well, fuck, I have to, I'm, I got to see where, like talk about chasing a rabbit down a trail. I had to see where it went. <laughs> mm -hmm. And between November, mid-November of 2020 and March of 2021, I made close to 125 mandalas. Wow. Yeah. And what are, what's the average size of those? That is they're such all a, over the map. It's such a great question. No, they're very limited. They don't, the largest is 12 by 12. Um, mm -hmm. And that is only because of the technologies that I have that I like, I, right. you know, they're very labor intensive. Um, and at the point at which I go larger than 12 by 12, I really would need to be working on panels with nails. And what I like about working on paper with it is one, very few people do that. And that it doesn't have hardware. There's no right. hardware on it. And if I, if I took it to a panel and put it on nails, it's like, well, we've all seen that. Mm -hmm. Like everybody has seen that a million mm -hmm. times because that's how mandalas are oftentimes presented yeah. and they're beautiful. They are beautiful. I like working on nails, large scale, but I, I really love the intimacy of how small they are and how easily I can control them when they're smaller. I like, it's something to me when, we, when you spoke 
like we were talking about how comforting they are at the same time. They're just, they look like they could just tear apart. Yeah. And they're they're fragile. fragile. They're temporary. They're something that I think that a lot of people that like them pick up on as like, oh, this is something precious. This is something that I need to stop and look at and enjoy because it's, it could just like, you know, be gone. Yeah, they are. They're fragile for sure. Um, I love that, that idea. And it makes me think of something that a professor told me when I was in grad school with photography about in working with photography, how to determine what size to make a print, because obviously mm. in photography, we can produce it, whatever size our paper is. So we mm-hmm. can, and there can be multiples of it. Yeah. So, um, and, and those sizes that we're so familiar with, it's so easy to, um, look past because we're so familiar with that format. And so he talked very specifically about the precious little jewel, like the photography mm-hmm. that is tiny, tiny, that really you have to lean into it to see it. And I, and I do like that. And so I suppose to some extent, I have this body of work, this small scale, tiny, like you have to get close to it to notice the detail, to appreciate the intricacies of it, or it's just beyond measured, oversized and mm-hmm. Look at me. Mm-hmm. I have one of your photography pieces. I think I got it from OVAX 12 by 12 and it calls, you know, calls me to lean in and look at it. There's like a circle. It's through a, a doorway. Uh-huh. And then I'm looking into some sort of wallpaper or uh-huh. texture. You have one of the blue. It's like digital image imagery. Yes. So that was from an elevator um, in a New York City hotel that had video art in their elevator. And every time we'd go up and down, the video moves with the elevator, like the scene of the video. It was so cool. And we'd get in the elevator. I'm sure Rob was just like, what are you doing? I'm taking (laughs) pictures of it at these different like junctures because it was constantly shifting and changing. So you never got to see the same thing once. And Mm. And then I'm using a filter on my phone that distorted the image and made it into something different. But that's what that's from. Ooh. <laughs> I can't remember the name of the hotel, but I can tell you what neighborhood it was in in New York. <laughs> like, that's Perfect. the best I can do. Well, and then I say that and I'm like, oh, no, I can't. <laughs> it was near the High Line. Okay. Yeah. I'll track it down. It was it was a fancy hotel. Share with us now your newest exhibition at Oklahoma Contemporary called Off the Wall. What is that about? Um, Pablo Barrera, who is the curator at Oklahoma Contemporary, invited me and Sarah Ahmad and Miriam Rana. And the three of us were each allocated a specific area of the third floor gallery at Oklahoma Contemporary and kind of challenged with like, okay, you're working off the wall. Mm-hmm. What does this look like for you? And Miriam and Sarah both had existing work that they reconfigured in different ways or like Miriam had three panels that a fourth one was introduced to it and they were presented differently than they had ever been before. And Sarah took multiple pieces and refragmented and reconstructed and made this amazing piece. Um, And when Pablo asked me to do it and presented me with this corner and he was like, what I, what I, why I'm asking you and what I appreciate, appreciate about what you do is how you respond to architecture and how you will look at this corner of the gallery and 
that this corner itself will inform what you do. So pre-pandemic in 2020, I'd been in the latest concept show for OVAC in Tulsa and had presented a piece on the wall with nails and thread and like 20 miles of thread passing back and forth. And I presented this pink rounded kind of voluptuous cloud burst on the wall with a pair of scissors for people to cut. And they did. And it was awesome. Um, at Oklahoma Contemporary, it's a little bit of a different, like they don't want to present the work with scissors. They don't want people cutting it on the first day. It's got to be up through June. I mean, mm-hmm. right. give people something to come and see, but it will be presented with scissors at the final Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that, that that is such a, it's it's something, I mean, here's why I want to do this. Like in working with nails and thread on a wall in a gallery, you know it's temporary. That's not going to last forever. I mean, not only mm-hmm. is it not going to last forever because people would destroy it if it was up there forever, but there's another show coming. This mm-hmm. is coming down. It's mm-hmm. going to get cut. And I have cut enough of them at this point that I know that there's something really interesting that happens there. And I don't think that that's an experience that I need to keep just to myself. Like I have this private experience with my artwork. It's destroyed. Like that's mm-hmm. not it at all. It's like, <laughs> no, it's kind of cool. And I think people would enjoy watching it. So we are going to do that. Um, the space that I'm in for Off the Wall is a very challenging space. It is architecturally a challenging space. There's a column in the middle of a wall that cuts the wall in half, puts spaces on both sides and bumps out away from the wall. And then there's a cut, cut in, like there's this cavern in one wall that cuts the wall in half and it makes this unusable, the top half of the wall is completely unusable and not even weight bearing that anybody could even try to do something with it. So there's just a big hole in the middle of the wall that is going to be there that every artist is going to have to contend with. And then it's also right next to the catering kitchen that has a key code (laughs) with a thing that's by the wall. So every rendering I'd send, finally Pablo was like, you're going to have to adjust this line for this key card thing. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? He, I did not say that. He was so great to work with and he was so patient with me with my like, challenging challenging corner i think i did a good job though with it good i'm really proud of what i made i like i gave an artist talk last week with sarah and with mariam at oklahoma contemporary and i was able to talk about kind of what the thread meant to me in the context of this space which is way more science fiction than it is mandala or um impermanence it's like no, let's think about like what this thread is doing in this space because there's a hole in the wall. <laughs> there's a hole in the wall. What if this thread is what's keeping this hole sutured together? And if the thread weren't there, it would just even expand out further. Or what if the converse is true? And this thread is what's forcing the hole to even open. Like if this thread weren't here, maybe it would be a solid wall. But here I've created this portal into... I don't know. It's kind of interesting to think about it that way because it's a very, very unusual space. I saw your work that this was based off of at the concept show mm. in Tulsa. And I remember the dainty scissors like there near and my nieces were with me. Um, and Did they I, cut it? Yes. Yeah. How can you not? 
As I approached the work of art with the scissors, I could feel the air go out of the room. Like, no, she's going to cut it. And I was like, does she want me to cut it? Or does she, is she videoing me cutting it? Or is, is this a response? Like, am I not supposed to cut it? And then my niece was like, you should cut it. <laughs> Here's the little voice so, on your shoulder. Exactly. So this like eight year old just leaned in and was like, that one. That's cool. <laughs> I cut a tiny little thread off mm-hmm. and then I felt super guilty about it. The people who have told me that they felt guilty about cutting it and it's like, well, but I did present it with scissors. Yeah, mm-hmm. you it did. It was a dare. I mean. And it was very satisfying. It's very satisfying. Like the spring of the thread. Uh, exactly. The fall of against the wall, the shadows, mm-hmm. the form totally changed. Mm-hmm. What surprised me about the concept show very genuinely was they were little dainty scissors. They were little sewing scissors that mm-hmm. it was presented with. But what really surprised me is that nobody just went the distance with it. I just, I could not believe that nobody was just like, whack. Mm-hmm. So glad they didn't. They, sh- they shared the destruction with everybody else. They yeah. left room oh, yeah. for other people to participate, which was nice. I feel like that would be part of it, though, is is that like you don't want to like even if you enjoyed it, you want other people to have that interaction mm-hmm. in the process. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned earlier in the elaborate collaborate about erasing mm-hmm. and did that really fit within the collaboration or, you know, it, it defined it further. I've seen a work by Haley Prestofilippo. Mm-hmm. It was at Momentum and it was, she provided a beautiful detailed drawing in pencil and it had several erasers there. And before I got there, it was erased. Mm-hmm. I was like, dang, I missed it. it. really draws home though the significance of immediacy, like that you really kind of have to if you're if you miss it, you miss you then you missed it. We would love to know what it means to you to cultivate community through creativity. Paul, oh, that's such a big question. Mm-hmm. What it means to me. Oh, man, isn't it really just that creativity allows for the license that anything is possible. And if you're trying to foster community through maybe other methods, they're more academic or they're more rigid in their mm-hmm. structure. Mm-hmm. Um, where creativity, I mean, if you're doing it under the, if you're couching it in terms of creativity, it feels like that just opens up the possibility, like there, there are no rules then, like you can do it however you want. And as opposed to like the things that pop to mind in terms of how you try and quickly foster community would be Greek life on a college campus. And there certainly is creativity that goes into a rush week or into pledging or into hazing or into (laughs) induction or into any of those ways in which those people become a community really fast. There is creativity in it. There is a process, a very structured and defined process that has worn over years of a house doing the same thing over and over with just minor modifications based upon whatever societal structure dictates at a time. Um, 
I mean, they don't haze the way they used to, I'd like to think, but yeah, hopefully, <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas if you're, if you do couch it in creativity, it's like, well, no, anything, anything is possible. And structure is very comforting to, I think, a great many people. Like people really do like to know what they're getting into, what it's going to, like everything about it. People want to know. But there's some freedom in just being like, huh, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be. Well, let's see. Let's just see. Yeah. Let's discover this together. Right. It's the experiential process that's, yeah. that leaves it that leaves it open to, one, accessibility to everybody. Is like, hopefully every, everybody can be a part of creativity because mm-hmm. it's, it's inside you. It's not something you have to go to school for or learn or whatever. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's, it's all inclusive in the greatest sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That isn't that just it. Creativity is accessible to everybody, whether they know it or not. It's, it's the fear mm-hmm. that prevents people from embracing it. Um, but it's the fact that everybody's a photographer, mm-hmm. everybody's a writer, right. everybody has the capacity to do these things. It's only through the practice and the um, structure or the routine of becoming better that you become better. I mean, I wish I were, had a natural aptitude for lots of things, but I don't have a natural aptitude for drawing or for painting. Like these are things that I really, really have to work hard at because I'm not good at it. I but, look at it like a muscle <clears throat> is, <clears throat> is there are some people who they're able to create muscle mass faster. They have fast twitch muscles or they have whatever, but if they don't work out, mm-hmm. you have a potential inside of you to make yourself better and to exercise that. For me, the big thing was, is knowing that that was possible. I grew up in a like creative poor community. <laughs> you know, we didn't know that there were these options. And so after I was exercising them, but I didn't know I was, I was just doing what was innate to me. Uh, but I think that if people understand that creativity is like, just start creating, you'll become more creative. It's true. It is. It's totally true. And I think I want to believe at least the younger generation, these generations that are coming up, um, probably millennial Z and whatever is after Z. Have they named that generation I, yet? I'm, I'm too old to know what the newest generation <laughs> is. So it's probably generation TikTok. Um, <laughs> generation, not me. So. Right. <laughs> I think that they, by the nature of what they're being exposed to constantly, between uh, video content online, photography that is, I mean, mean, even amateur photographers putting out really good content on Instagram um, or things like TikTok or the media that we're seeing now that's being produced is going to force a more creative culture. I mean, these kids are going to, they have exposure that none of us had and certainly none of our parents or grandparents or God, when I think about my grandparents and think about what our lives are like now and how blown their minds would be, it just blows my mind to even think about it. Well, and I think mentioning that I, I just thought about like, okay, this puts in a whole new perspective of like, uh, of like what it must've been like for like a Van Gogh. Or mm-hmm. something because there's literally no one in the world. Well, maybe a couple at, that we know now that were similar, but he's 
everybody, everything that he's taking in is telling him, oh, you're doing it wrong. And then he's like, no, I'm still going to do it this way, you know, and, and several artists like that. It's just that people blows me away that they did what they did. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But then the success happens, you know, after they pass. So like sure. the idea yeah. to have this avenue of, to promote our work and that's what's saying. I used to be an assistant for an artist, Jason Hackenworth, who lives in St. Petersburg now. But when he was in New York, he was creating large scale sculptures out of latex balloons that were ephemeral in nature and temporary, which is easily where everything is temporary comes from. And one of the things that he would say over and over to people he met or to audiences or to me or to people who were coming by while we were working and installing was that his audience hasn't even been born yet. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of true for almost all artists. I mean, we, you know, like, I think we're all kind of lucky to have an audience of community of friends, of art patrons, of people who do appreciate. And I'm not saying that like I haven't sold art or that I haven't had success with it, but I think, and that's also not to say that I'm going to, that I have a legacy that will live on after my death. It's, but it is true when you think about the art that is being produced, there are people who do appreciate it, but it does take that historical long view Mm -hmm. to look and, and kind of recognize like, oh no, they were kind of doing something really like even more badass than they knew at the time. Mm -hmm. And what this led to in terms of either the evolution of philosophy or the evolution of art or the evolution of society, like whatever it is, you have to have historical perspective to be able to appreciate it. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Name a few of your biggest inspirations. Who's had a part in making you who you are today? Too many people have had a part in making me who I am today Mm -hmm. for me to even begin to name. Right. Everyone. And at the point at which I would even start naming people, I'm inevitably going to leave. Yeah, that's fair. Some people out, which makes me sad only in the sense that that I think that most of those people know who they are Mm -hmm. and know that they have had an impact because I feel like I'm pretty good at being generous about like, no, I'm so grateful. Thank you. 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 I mean, no one would be surprised that I would say Kelsey Carper. Mm-hmm. Probably the single biggest impact on everything that I have done and probably everything that I will do. Cool. That's um, awesome. I feel lucky that I had time with her as a creative partner. I would love the opportunity to have that with her again because I think that we worked really well together and had a really symbiotic relationship in terms of making and curating and rent like everything. Yep. Yep. Hands on her. And I know that anybody else who's like, what about me? You all know, you all know, Mm -hmm. and you also know why I would single out Kelsey. So, right, right, right. If I take a bigger view, a bigger inspirational view and not think about the people who have directly impacted me or my career or the way I, in which I do things, and I look just at art, there are three artists that come to mind immediately, and I'm not going to say any of their names properly, <laughs> which is embarrassing. One is Olafur Eliasson. Eliasson? Eliasson? Eliasson. He is from... Norway, 
or Finland or Denmark. He's from one of the Scandinavian countries. So take that name, Eliason, Eliason, and do with it what you will. <laughs> Check our show notes, though. Yeah. We'll, we'll have a link. Right? So we'll figure he out who he is. A, he's a super, super famous, super famous artist. And I didn't even know who he was uh, at all. Like, I'd never even heard his name. I didn't know anything about him. I was in New York in 2008 with my friend Mara Deering, and we were at the MoMA, and we were riding up the escalator. And I was standing in a way that as we were going up, I was facing her and she was below me. So I'm going backwards <laughs> and she is going forward and the escalator is packed. I mean, there are people behind me. There are people behind her. We're all moving up this escalator into the second floor kind of foyer area. And as we're ascending the escalator, Mara's face, like the look on her face was jarring until I realized that what she was looking at at me, now I am looking at her and we are both devoid of color. Everything is black and white. Everything is black and white. We went from being in full color to black and white because Olafur Eliasson had installed his yellow light room. Oh, yes. And it, blo- it affects your cones and rods. Right. And so... That's Everything's cool. kind of got a little bit of a yellow, but really, I mean, it is it's like black, black and, and white. white people in a yellow room. It mm-hmm. was so wild and just blew my mind because who knew? I didn't know. Did you know? Like, who knew that this was a thing that could happen? And and now he's doing it. And we're everybody here. We're all having this experience together where our minds are being blown. And we're like looking at our own skin and our clothes and each other and around us. And it's just what I was lucky enough to see that a second time in Chicago um, and then studying his work and seeing what he's done. It's just like a huge inspiration. I know I'll never in a million years achieve that level of success. He blows my mind. And if any of your listeners have not watched the episode season two, episode one of Abstract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just about to mention that. It's great. That. Like yes. even the beginning where blows he's like, let's mind. do this together. That's and he's it. putting these color cards up to the camera. Like, okay, imagine this. I, I don't, he is the kind of artist that has a factory of workers. Like mm-hmm. he's, he is not you a, have to. yeah, I mean, he is not an individual at this point. He is a mega entity. artist. Yeah. He's an entity, but he definitely is a huge inspiration for me. I look at that and I'm just like, yeah, anything's possible. He filled a room with yellow and made it art mm-hmm. and it was art and it was an experience. And it was such an experience that I wish I knew who the other people that were in the room that we could keep in touch about this pivotal moment. Yeah, like that it you was, experienced with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. It was really significant. That is really cool. Janet Eckelman is another. I think it's Eckelman and maybe Eshelman. That's a that's one where it's like that's embarrassing that I don't know. She's she has a TED talk worth looking at and she pronounces her name properly. So that's where you can find it. <laughs> well, at least one person did. So. <laughs> she is the artist that makes the large scale rope installations that are in cityscapes where they hang and float and move in the breeze and they're lit. She came to that. She was a painter and she mm-hmm. was doing a residency on an island and her paint supplies didn't. Arrived. Oh, and she no. had an obligation to the residency to produce a body of work, but none of her supplies are there. And she's on a remote island and there's no paint, there's no store. And 
she made a sculpture out of rope and that totally led her in it. Like she went from being a painter to a full-time fiber artist working large scale with rope. Her work is beautiful and absolutely riveting. And I have no idea how, how she does it. But again, teams, teams of Mm -hmm. artists. And then the third is Gabriel Daw. He is a Dallas based artist. Um, He does thread sculptures. He, he is, leading the pack in terms of beautiful prismatic very elegant room size architectural made out of sewing thread and i've studied his work and have been lucky enough to see it in person several times and i'm a great admirer and really appreciate what he does he definitely is an inspiration as much as i want to emulate everything he does i also don't want to even go close to it because what he does is so beautiful and is of his own voice. And I, and it helps me to think about how to do similar work in a similar style without even coming close to what he's doing so that I don't mind a comparison. Of course I am inspired by him. I would be lying if I said, I've never heard of him. (laughs) I have, I'm paying close attention. Um, but so that I can have my own language with it and not mm-hmm. be like, oh, this is what Gabriel did. So I'm just right. modifying his design. I'm trying to right. do my own thing with it, but his work's amazing. We'd like to thank Romy for sharing her time with us. You can see more of Romy's work at RomyOwens.com. We'd also recommend that you take a trip to Enid, Oklahoma to enjoy the Enid Wing and experience the unveiling of Sugar High, an immersive, interactive art installation. You can also follow along with her on Instagram at TheRomyOwens. Find this information and other links mentioned in this podcast in our show notes for this episode at our website, www.rallyokc.com. And of course, we want to thank our audience for listening. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast if you enjoyed it. You can follow us along on Instagram at rally.up.okc. We'll be joining you again soon. Cheers! of it such such a funny word i feel like every time i say it i'm saying penis but i'm saying weenus romy said weenus <laughs> <laughs>